From WFPL, this is Unbound, fiction on the radio. I'm Erin Keene. In each episode, we'll hear stories on a theme from two different writers. Today's episode looks at friendships between two pairs of girls, complex in nature and sometimes fraught with danger. Like roommates. Can't live with them, can't exile them to space. College is a time to make lasting friendships. But what if your freshman roommate turns out to be from another planet? Our first story is Tessa Mellis with BB from Jupiter. When I marked on my roommate survey sheet that I'd be interested in living with an international student, I was thinking she'd take me to Switzerland for Christmas break or to Puerto Rico for a month in the summer. I wasn't thinking about a romp around the red eye of Jupiter, which is exactly what I'd have gotten had I followed my roommate home. Apparently, American school systems have gotten popular all over. Universities shepherd the foreigners in. Anything to be able to write on the brochures, our student body hails from 33 countries and the far reaches of the solar system. You'd think there'd have been an uproar over the matter. I mean, here we have student funding going down the toilet and everyone staging protests to show they're pissed. And she gets a full ride. All the amenities paid for. She comes in like a Cuban refugee, minus the boat, sweeps up all the scholarships, and why shouldn't she? She probably qualifies as 15 different types of minority. Don't get me wrong, I don't have anything against her. We were friends. I just didn't expect her to be so popular. I figured I'd have to protect her from riots and reporters, but as it turns out, she was really well-liked. The first time I met her, I nearly peed my pants. It's the end of August, and I've got all my stuff shoved in the family van. Too unorganized for my father's taste, but we only live an hour away. I'm hoping to get there first, to pick the best side of the room, the one with the most sunlight and least damaged furniture. I get up early just to beat her there, but I don't. She's sitting at her desk already, reading the student handbook. I double-check the room number. 317. I've got the right place. This is my roommate. At first, I think she's an inmate. She's wearing this blue jumpsuit, and she's got pale green skin that looks sickly. Gangrene, I think. Not quite knowing what that is. It just sounds like a disease that would turn you green. She's not an all-out green, tinted rather, like she got a sunless tanner that didn't work out. Her ears are inset like a whale's, and she doesn't have eyelids. She's this tiny creature, not even five feet tall, completely flat, no breasts, it doesn't even look like she has nipples. My parents are right behind me, my mother's carrying my lava lamp like some offering, my father's got my futon extended over his head trying to be all macho in case my roommate's a babe. They drop my stuff on the side of the room with a broken closet door and turn to this green earless girl. They're all excited, want to make friends with the new roommate. So they start asking questions. How was your drive? Do you like the campus? Have your parents left? 
not even acknowledging the obvious, that she's green. Maybe they didn't notice. Like I said, it was a pale green, a tint, really, but it was pretty obvious to me. And she had weird eyes, beady black pinhead eyes, like a hamster's. So finally I ask, where are you from? And she says, Jupiter. Jupiter, New York, my parents ask? Not that they know there is a Jupiter, New York. It just makes more sense than the other possibility. No, she says, Jupiter, Jupiter, the planet. Oh, they say, I didn't realize we'd found life on other planets yet. How interesting. She says, you didn't, we found you, and goes back to her reading. That shuts my parents up fast. They have no response. They do an about face and head back to the car. Jupiter, my father's saying, you believe that, Kath? My mother's shaking her head, saying Jupiter over and over, first like it's a word she's never heard, a word she's trying to get used to, then like a question, Jupiter? Not quite sure whether to believe it. She says it several more times, looks at my father, then me. I was worried about Angela living with city kids, she says. This is a bit different. She unlocks the car, grabs a handful of pillows, and adds, Is Jupiter the one with the rings? I thought Jupiter was made of gas, my father says. How can she live on a gaseous planet? Let's just drop it, I say. She could be from the moon for all I care. As it turned out, she was from the moon. Well, one of them. Apparently Jupiter's got a few dozen. The one she's from is called Europa, by Americans at least. But she tells everyone she's from Jupiter, says it's easier to explain. Her name is Bibi. No last name, just Bibi. I looked it up. It means lady in Arabic. Ironic is her kind doesn't have genders, just one type like flowers, self-germinating and all. But she looks more like a girl than a guy, so that's how we treat her while she's here, even though her body parts serve both functions. She tells me most of this the first night in the dorm. I'm unpacking my toiletries, and she's still reading. I say, your parents were cool with you coming to America? Mine wouldn't even let me go out of state. I don't have parents, Phoebe says. Oh, Christ, I say. I'm sorry. That sucks. What can you say in a situation like that? I'd never met an orphan. It's fine, she says. Nobody has parents. I grew up like this, sort of in a dorm. How can nobody on Jupiter have parents, I ask? I know I'm being nosy, but you've got to admit it's strange. It's complicated, she says. I don't feel like getting into it. I'm about to insist when there's a knock at the door. Bibi jumps to get it, and these men wheel in a full-size fridge. It's brand new, a Frigidaire, one of those side-by-side freezer-and-fridge jobs, complete with ice maker. They prop it against the window, plug it in, and leave. What the heck is that, I ask, knowing full well it's a fridge, not quite sure what it's doing in our room. 
My parents bought us one of those mini-units, just enough space for a Brita filter, pudding snacks, and string cheese. The university had exact specifications on which ones were allowed. This frigid air is not on the list. Bibi explains how she got special permission to have it in the room, says she has a medical condition. What kind of condition, I ask? Are you contagious? It's not a viral condition, she says. I need a daily supply of ice. Ice, I say? For what? Don't they teach you this stuff in school, she asks. The basics of the solar system? Of course, I say, third grade. We memorized the planets. There was a song. Apparently, she doesn't believe me. She goes to my dresser and starts grabbing stuff. She throws my nightie in a lump in the middle of the floor, says, that's the sun. She places a red thong beside it and calls that mercury. Venus is a pair of toe socks, Earth a blue bra, Mars a pair of leggings, and Jupiter and all its moons are my best sparkly panties. She lines them up, stands to the side, says, see? Yeah, I get your point, I say, though I don't really. I'm too pissed that my underwear are on the floor. Matching bras and panties aren't cheap. I appreciate the astronomy lesson, I say, but she cuts me off. She points at my bra. You're here, she says. We're there. See how far we are from the sun? It's cold. We don't have sweat glands. Your planet is hot, so I need ice. Capiche? Capiche? Who does she think she is? A Jupiterian girl trying to intimidate me with Italian? Barging in with her refrigerator, taking the best side of the room and making my thong a planet? I snatch her solar system off the floor and stuff it back in my drawer, say, I don't know much about Jupiter, but here, stuff like that isn't cool. There's another knock at the door. I'm about to say, that better not be a stove when these guys from down the hall walk in. They want Bibi to join them for a game of pool. I'm Angela, I say, extending my hand. You can come too if you want, they say, but it's clear they're just interested in Bibi. I shrug. I got stuff to do. Maybe next time. And Bibi takes off. No apology. No, I'm not going without my roommate. No, nothing. She just leaves me there with her big, ridiculous fridge while she goes to shoot pool with these boys she's never even seen. I'm not sure what they see in her. She isn't at all pretty. I mean, I don't think so. We have rigid aesthetics here, right? How can you count a green earless girl without eyelids as pretty? I watch them head down the stairs. The dorm is quiet, empty. I thought people were supposed to congregate on their floor the first night, praise each other's bedspreads and posters. The door across the hall opens, and a guy wearing pink pants and a polo shirt steps out. Hey, I say. Hey, he replies. He's wearing his collar propped up like he's Snow White. His hair is gelled back and goopy. I want to tell him that went out of style with the fawns, but instead say, I'm Angela, even though it's written on the construction paper sign on my door. Call me Skippy, he says, even though his sign says John Ward III. Where'd the nickname come from, I ask. I made it up, he says. People say you can reinvent yourself in college. Huh, I say, good choice. So that green girl's your roommate, he asks. Yeah, afraid so. Do you know when she's getting back, he asks. I heard she's from Jupiter. 
You think you could introduce me? Lloyd in Space is my favorite cartoon. Tessa Mellis is the winner of the 2013 Iowa Short Fiction Award for her story collection, Lungs Full of Noise. Coming up, we go to Vegas for a weekend with the girls. This is Unbound from WFPL. Thanks for listening to Unbound. You can find out more about the authors and music you hear in the show, and you can let us know what you think at WFPL.org. Welcome back to Unbound. Today, stories about girlfriends. Our girl takes her best friend to Sin City to get over her boyfriend. But do the things that happen in Vegas ever truly stay there? Here's Claire Vave Watkins with Rondine Al Nido. Our girl is 16 years old. Her palms press against the stinging metal of a heat rack. Her best friend, Lena, a large-toothed girl from Minnesota, stands across from her, palms pressed against the rack, too. Their eyes are locked, and a skin scent rises between them. This is their game, one of many. In the pocket of our girl's apron rests a stack of fleshy pepperoni, their edges curling in the swelter. Behind her, the slap-mouthed pizza oven bellows steadily. A blackened sheet of parchment paper, baking parchment, floats in a dish of hot grease. The grease has a name, and as our girl tells the story, this name will return to her, along with other details of this place, which had until now left her. The flatulent smell from a newly opened bag of sausage— the flimsy yellowed plastic covering the computer keyboards and phone keypads, the serrated edge of a cardboard box slicing her index finger nearly to the bone. Naked in her own bed with a man for whom she feels too much too soon, our girl will recall the name of the grease. Whirl, it was called and the then-exquisite possibility of searing off her fingerprints. Lena, her friend, finally pulls her hands from the rack, shaking the sting from them. You win, she says. Our girl waits a beat, gloating, then lifts her palms from the surface, lustrous with heat. She folds a pepperoni disc into her mouth. Let's go again, she says. Soon, our girl is cut loose for the night by the manager, a brick-faced, wire-haired woman named Susie. 
She waits for Lena on the bench in front of the counter, watching carry-out mothers waddle from and to their idling cars with their pizzas and their slippery, foil-wrapped cheese sticks. Six and a half hours ago, in the parking lot of the Walmart across the street, Kyle Peterson, a tenor sax in their school's jazz band, dumped Lena, his girlfriend of nearly a year, for the first-chair flutist, a freshman, and a thinner, looser version of Lena. Two hours later, our girl wiped mascara from under Lena's rubbed raw eyes in the sheetrock bathroom and asked whether she wanted to get the f*** out of this town. Two hours after that, when she was certain her mother and stepfather had left for their Friday night 12-step meeting, our girl dialed her own phone number. She told the machine, I'm going to Lena's after work to stay the night. And, I love you, which is what she always says after she lies to them. By the time Lena gets off, they've both got an uneventful adolescence's worth of recklessness welling inside them, and one of them has a driver's license and a like-new Dodge Neon, and it's just the tip of summer, which means there are college boys from places like Chicago and Florida and New York City wandering the Strip, 60 miles away, boys who came to Las Vegas looking for girls willing to do the things she and Lena think they are willing to do. At 8 o'clock, Lena changes out of her uniform and wets her hair and underarms at the bathroom sink, and then the two walk out into the parking lot with their soiled uniforms balled under their arms, their apron strings trailing along the asphalt, as though they don't have to be back for tomorrow's dinner rush, as though they don't have to be back ever again. On the road, all there is is desert and night and the taillights of cars ahead of them, the radio comes in and out. Once, without taking her eyes off the road, Lena says, I should have done it with him. I don't know why I didn't. Our girl says nothing, only nods. When Lena swings the neon around the final curve of the mountain range separating their town from Las Vegas, they see light sweeping across the valley floor like a blanket made of lights like light is a liquid and the city is a great glistening lake. Lena sucks a little saliva from her overlarge teeth and asks, is it okay if they turn the radio off? She has never driven in the city. Our girl says, that's cool, because the radio is suddenly nothing compared to the billboards and limos and rented convertibles and speakers embedded in the sidewalks emitting their own music into the air and because she'll say anything to soothe Lena to keep her driving. Our girl directs Lena to park on the top floor of the parking garage at the New York, New York. It is June 2001. This is the Las Vegas that has recently given up on becoming what they were calling a family-friendly vacation destination. The water slides and roller coasters and ice skating rinks that were once part of the mega resorts have been torn down to make room for additional hotel towers, floor space, and parking garages like this one. Lena pulls hard on the parking brake, the way her mother taught her. She moved from Minnesota her freshman year when her mom was offered a job at SNI County Health Nurse. Her parents have been divorced since before she can remember. She sees her father, an accountant, on Christmas and Easter, 
and lives with him in St. Paul for five weeks during the summer. Lena doesn't know anything about what was once Wet and Wild or MGM Grand Adventures. Our girl spent her birthdays and end-of-year field trips in such places and could be saddened by their vanishing, could consider it the demolition of her childhood. But thoughts like these will not come to her for years. Lena has a tube of waterproof mascara and a peacock blue eyeliner pencil in her purse. Our girl has a vanilla bean body spray and kiwi strawberry lip gloss and gum in three different incarnations of mint. All these they trade in the front seat of the neon until both are eye-lined and fragrant and fresh-mouthed. Outside there is a breeze threading through the warm night and a jubilant honking of cars and all those billions of bulbs flashing in time, signaling to the girls that they are, at long last, alive. Across Las Vegas Boulevard is an enormous gold lion posing regally in the mist of a fountain. The lion is the property's second. The original, a formidable open-mouthed beast forged in mid-roar, was replaced because it frightened some Chinese tourists and was considered bad luck by others. Down the expansive block is an unimpressive aging Camelot, and beyond that a black glass pyramid, the apex of which emits a thick rope of light supposedly visible from space. The girls set off in the opposite direction, toward an ever-expanding ancient Rome and, across the palm-lined, traffic-clogged boulevard, the Eiffel Tower, where our girl's stepfather poured concrete during Phase Two. They cross a Brooklyn bridge, its waters strewn with coins, and pass before the wood-toothed mouth of a grinning Coney Island clown that will be demolished long before either girl reveals the happenings of this night to anyone. Soon, propped on the rubber handrail of a downbound outdoor escalator, our girl stares unblinkingly at a cluster of young men headed in the opposite direction. When they pass, Lena turns and waves to them, but our girl dismounts the escalator coolly and without turning, wielding the fearsome magnetism of ambivalence. When they reach the top, the young men turn and descend the escalator. The young men outnumber the girls by two. Our girl likes the way the four of them form a slowly closing semicircle around her and her friend. She likes, too, how they all look the same, in their baggy jeans and pastel-collared shirts. They are dressed as most boys their age or slightly older dress, as though their tops and bottoms were mismatched pieces from two separate puzzles, one marked boy and the other man. One of them introduces himself as Brad, another as Tom, another Greg, and the last Alan. Except for Alan, they say these names too often, and like candies too large for their mouths. This is Brad. Brad, shake her hand. Don't be rude, Brad. And because of this, it becomes clear to everyone that these are not their real names. Everyone except Lena, who waves and says, Nice to meet you, Brad.
The one who calls himself Tom suggests they walk up to the Bellagio to watch the fountain show. The girls glance at each other and say, sure, as they do again at the show when one young man, Greg, is it, offers them a cup of orange soda clandestinely cut with vodka. Lena's mouth twists as she releases the straw, but our girl urges the straw up to her lips again, and Lena drinks more heartily. They pass the cup back and forth. This is what they came for. Soon, the industrial fountain spigots emerge from the glassy black surface of the water, and somewhere, strings begin to hum. The song is Rondine al Nido, which pleases our girl, not because she recognizes it as such. She doesn't. But because she wants Lena to experience the pure, painful awe of the bright-lit Bellagio fountains, and she believes this is best conveyed when the cannon blasts are paired with something classical, something like the agony of ill-fated love. After the show, the boy who calls himself Greg turns to them. He is large, with the overexpressed muscles that come from a university rec center, so unlike the aching, striated parts of a man who works for a living, as our girl's stepfather would say. Greg asks, How old are you guys? Old enough, says Lena, and this makes our girl proud. Greg laughs. We'll see about that. The boys ask them more questions. Where they live, where they go to school, and meanwhile one of them replenishes the soda cup. Our girl lies up a city life for them moves them into adjacent two-story houses near the Galleria Mall, skips them ahead to senior year and enrolls them in a school whose football team once came out and trounced their own. They drink. They walk. The boys say they go to UCSB, though our girl will misremember it as UCSC, so that in the coming years, these boys and what they do to them will combine with far-off Santa Cruz, California, and years later, lying beside the sensible man with the devastating laugh, the first man she will not see beyond, the boys will have the scent of damp redwood and the sharp angles of that region's mountain lions, which she once read about. In her bed, the candles dimming behind her, she will say nothing of these associations. She will be barely aware of them. She'll tug the top sheet out from under her, absently touch her fingers to the dampness left between her legs and say, they had a room. But the sensible man, being who he is, will find the angles in her face. The redwood wet will be in his throat when he asks her, you went there? Alone? You were just a girl. I had Lena, she'll say, my friend. But because he'll know what's coming, this will only make it worse. Claire Vay Watkins is the author of the story collection Battleborn, which won the Story Prize and the Rosenthal Foundation Award for Fiction. 
Unbound is made possible in part by the bachelor's and master's writing programs at Spalding University. The show is a production of WFPL, edited by me, Aaron Keene, and Gabe Bullard, with assistance from Joe Durso. Music for this episode was provided by Will Oldham, Telephobia, Nerves Jr., Ladybirds, and Omar Miller. Our theme song is Patrons of the Arts by Brother Stephen. For more information, visit WFPL.org.